I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. The Andy J Podcast. Hey, welcome to a bonus episode of the Andy J Podcast. How are you doing? Hope your week's going really well. Hope you enjoyed James Martin earlier this week. If you're listening because you love celebrity chefs, you won't be disappointed because this one is with a maestro, John Burton Race. And if you're just listening for a bit of celebrity chat, I'll tell you what, he really brings his A-game. It was a lovely conversation, so a nice quick half hour with a man who has so many Michelin stars to his name and was really, really great company. Enjoy. The Andy J Podcast. I am so pleased to welcome my next guest. Wow. Okay, he's a chef, a restaurateur, a consultant, an author, a media personality. He literally juggles Michelin stars. It's the marvellous John Burton Race. How are you doing, John? I'm doing really well. Thank you. I like the idea, John, and I know that it's not necessarily a visual image that you have adopted yet, but I like the idea of you literally juggling with Michelin stars. Could you could you do that? Um, possibly. I mean, I'm getting a bit older, so maybe I'll need my glasses. <laughs> totally random and bizarre question for you. Are they a physical thing? Are they something that you get to sort of, like an Oscar, where you, you get to have a trophy, as it were, or is it just a... a no, no, not really. I mean, you get a mention in the guidebook, obviously, and if, you, if you're that sort of person, you can get hold of a plaque which will tell people that you've got a Michelin star. But the people that follow the Michelin Guide have usually got their book and know what's happening. And nowadays, of course, everything's on your mobile phone. So there's a Michelin app which you can look at and they'll tell you all the changes, who's got what and who's gone up, who's gone down and who's gone out. So that's how that works, I think. Have you ever been that guy that's got the plaque? Uh, definitely not, no. Oh, I, I would need to do it, John. I would need, I would, because no, no, I mean, you've no. got so many. You could have a huge, great I tell you what, when I was younger, I actually thought about it because it's nice to have the gongs and whistles and show off about it. I, I remember a long, long time ago, I won um, Chef of the Year, you know, the Katie Award. Yeah. And it's this beautiful bronze statue of this naked um, girl holding a scallop shell. And it really is quite prestigious. And because... Um, because I think there would have been only about 10 chefs before me that had won it, I was I thought that was, and I used to display that all over the place and move it around and show off to the, to the lads in the kitchen, most of which didn't know what I was doing or what I was talking about. So. <laughs> Where is it now? Um, it's in my study. Good. And I have to say, I, I had a, a glass dome uh, built for her, and I broke it. Oh no! And so, so it's there. And I'm. Someone said to me, because it's bronze, don't ever polish it. And because she's naked, that'd be a bit weird anyway. So <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to do that. But I did break the glass dome that I spent a fortune um, 
getting moulded to, you know, to make it look more substantial. But anyway, there you go. There we go. And you've never had the Brasso out. Fair enough. No, I mean... definitely not. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad it still has a place, though, and it? it's not just kind of hiding in the attic or something. No, no, it? definitely. It's, I mean, all those things are a great honour. You, uh, you don't want to get flippant about it. If people think that you're that or you're this, it's, it's great to have that sort of appreciation. And I don't, and I don't think that changes, even though, you know, as you get on with your career, it's just that perhaps you're, you're, I wouldn't say you're not as hungry, but you settle down a little bit, but as you get older, you mellow. And, you know, those things, as long as your customers are happy, and as long as they keep coming back, that's the main thing, because, of course, that's your bread and butter. Yes, absolutely. And of course, it's a very British thing, John, you know, that the sort of being humble kind of, oh, thank you so much. But yeah, no, I won't, I won't brag about it. Yeah, we have got that thing about, actually, that's really weird, because I was talking to a friend of mine the other day about that. And we have got that thing about it's okay to be second, (laughs) (laughs) which which was never bred in me, because I remember when I was a little boy, and I used to have a pony, and I used to go to Jim Connors, and my mother, every time I came second or third, my mother always used to say to me, no one remembers you if you've come second. <laughs> <laughs> you see? So, so you're never going to get a pat on the back from her. And I think she must have given me my original ambition, I think, to try and do better and more. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Do you know, that's a really interesting insight, John. I'd love to talk to you about your childhood because, of course, we all know that with chefs, it is such a competitive world in which you live. And, and, and the hours that you have to put in, the dedication you have, there's no point in going in if you're not 100% dedicated, is it? Well, yeah, no, that's true. But it, it's almost like any vocational job. One of my sisters is a doctor and she puts in some stupid hours. Right. And um, the other one sort of teaches medicine now. And... Likewise, she works all the hours God sends. But um, being a chef is probably a, a vocational type of job. But the thing is, if you're consumed by it and if you love what you do, it isn't such a chore. You've got to remember as a young bloke or a young girl, you know, you're going to, you're going to have to work all the weekends because that's when everyone's off. You're going to have to work the summer holidays and then, of course, Christmas. And... It's a completely all-consuming type of career. And and then that's that's before you talk about the pressure of a kitchen or the pressure of a business as you uh, go up the ranks. But um, it's not as bad as it looks if you love it and you're prepared to surrender yourself to the job, you know. Yes. I think, especially in your early days, you become a... Who's driving what? You know, is the job driving you or are you driving the job? And basically, the job... is. If you want to be any good, you have to let it consume you, I think. Yes. How do you, I mean, I've always wondered this about chefs, John. How do you have friends? Because you're just always, always, always in the kitchen. Well, well, most most chefs are a bit weird anyway and obnoxious. <laughs> and so they haven't got a lot of friends. And as for close friends, um, not really. Um, it's more like because you are consumed about what you do and ambitious about what you do, um, and because you move all the time, it's always a good idea if you can, as a young apprentice, to work under a, a great chef with a you know sort of experience. Maybe one year, move around the sections, two years at maximum, and then move. And then you might go abroad, and then you might go here, and you might go there. So you're a bit 
it's a bit nomadic as well. So as far as as far as that's concerned, it's not brilliant on any relationship, you know, girlfriend, boyfriend, wife, husband. It's, you know, it's not good. It, mm. it really isn't. And it takes a special type of woman to put up the chefs, I think. Yes. Yes, I've, I've spoken to several chefs, many of whom have, have been married a few times. It's, it's not sort of, I can't think of one. Yeah, no, I, I, I can't remember how many times I've been married. But, I mean, <laughs> yes, it, 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 you do... It is, it is, it is difficult. But um, the one thing I've always said to myself is that the job's been true to me. You know, I mean, I've probably given a lot to it, but it's given me a lot back, and I'm still learning all the time. And it, there's not many jobs that you can think, oh God, it, you're still ambitious. You're still trying to find out. You, you know, I, 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 I totally love it. Yes, yes, I, I, I think that is one of the things as, as well that that is unique amongst wonderful leading chefs like yourself is it is you live it and breathe it all the time don't yeah, you absolutely right and also you know it's you it isn't until you're a little bit older that you develop your own sort of identifiable uh, style you know it's a bit i think when you start it's all about trying to impress everybody the general public probably and you're trying to be clever for the sake of being clever but you as you go along in life, you know, it calms down and you, 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 like anything else, when you get to a certain age, you know what you like, what you don't like, you know what, what you want to say on your plate, if, if, if you understand what I'm saying, mm. and you, you, you develop your own identifiable style. I mean, I'm, someone asked me the other day, um, what's the different difference between a cook and a chef? And I think, you can learn how to cook. You can be a cook. You can learn. Technically, there's the science of food, the history of food, the, the do's and the don'ts. And, but it's not, until, it's not until later on, once you've got that behind you, that you actually become a chef because you develop your own style. You know, if, if you were a painter and you had 10 or 12 paintings from Ten or twelve different artists on the wall. Mm. Um, if you were a great art critic, you could tell which artist painted what. You know, if you say, "Look, all of you paint a chicken," yeah. um, all the chickens would be different from the mad to the and insane to the sort of the set piece still life. And it's a bit like that when you're cooking. You know, you give twelve chefs in a room, all all of some repute a chicken to cook, every chicken would come out differently, you know, because they've got their own style of and their own approach to the dish. And I think that's what happens. Yes, and, and like with artists, John, and each each individual will have a, a preference. You know, it won't be that this ta- this tastes better than that. It's this tastes different to, and my palate yeah. loves this one, or I like looking at that piece. Yeah, of and, and but, but even the best chefs can muck up, you know. Um, Sometimes good cooking is a question of seconds. You know, if you leave a souffle in, a, in an oven for, I don't know, 30 seconds, not enough. And it's horrible. It's not no longer baveurs as you're supposed to serve it, so soft in the middle. Um, it's just bloody undercooked, you know. And then, but if you leave it two minutes more, it's a sponge cake. So, and I think, and especially not just desserts, but especially with fish cookery. 
um, you know, even the best chef, because of pressure of the service and you're doing loads of different plates and at loads of different times, and you're trying to hit the pass at the right time so you get the, the guy on the garnishes to come together and meet you with the sauce. If anything falls down on the service, um, a plate can go out that's probably not as good as it could be, but and that's the nature of the beef. It's the human element that is a bit dodgy, you know? Yes, yes. What are you like in the kitchen, John? Are you are you aggressive? Are you one of these sort of famous angry um, spoon I think, throwers? I, I think I was... I think I'm... I get terribly in, in myself um, on service and I get... I go terribly quiet and I'm concentrating to the maximum and um, because of that, if something does go wrong I sort of explode but not not probably now so much as I used to when I was younger and it's you've just got to get it out it's like that mad panic if you're in the theatre just before the curtain draws you know everyone's scrattling around and everyone's being terribly rude and loud and horrible and then ooh, curtain opens and off you go and sometimes sometimes during a service things can get terribly wrong you know and and you haven't got time to discuss it. It's like, oh, I'm terribly sorry. You know, I should have cooked the carrots. Well, that's not bloody good enough. You know, yeah. <laughs> every plate that goes out has got your name on it. So it's not. It's it's very difficult. Um, I think. I think again. Um, you learn that there is a tomorrow, and there will be a sunrise, and that you have to calm down and as long as you endeavour to do your best and produce the best you possibly can that's all you can expect I think Do you still get nervous before a service? I get um, not not probably not nervous I get excited so um, I love it if someone I remember when I was younger if I'm if we're like packed and we knew that there was going to be crazy bookings I used to hold the kitchen back in other words the waiters would come in bringing checks this table, that table, this table, that table, and I wouldn't let anyone start until it was total chaos. Because <laughs> <laughs> then off you go, go, and, and then and they all look at you thinking, oh, why is he doing this? But I just think people do work much better under pressure. Really? And yeah, I really do. I, I think you get moments of genius if you're, um, you know, your backs against the wall. If everything is all planned and everything's all nicey-nicey, the food's always nicey-nicey. You want something electric. You want something stunning. You want something inspirational. And it might only happen two or three services in your lifetime. It's when you're under pressure. That's what I think. Oh, wow. So you're a pressure power player. I just, I don't know. I, I I just feel the more excitement you get out of the job, the better, that's all. I love it. Wow, it's brilliant. John, let's let's talk about the, the early days. Born and raised in Singapore, um, yeah. which is, uh, again, quite an unusual, given you are clearly a true Brit these days, it's quite an unusual yeah. start. So so where did the love and passion for food come from? Well, I think, I think it did start in the Far East because my father worked for the UN and um, um, and I, I suppose I used to, um, whilst I was very, very young, Moved from place to place. So I lived in Malaya, Singapore, obviously, Bangkok. I went to the American school there when I was younger, and Indonesia, and one or two other places, which I can't remember. And um, 
the love of food. So we were fortunate enough to have a, um, a lot of people helping us being, because my father was terribly important, I thought. But um, so we, I, we always had a cook, and I always used to go in to the kitchen with a cook. And that's not me making those horrible noises, by the way. That's my dog snoring. <laughs> um, so, um, so, um, and I suppose I've always been interested in food, and especially as a little boy, I was, I always ate too much, you know, because I loved it. And I remember being in a hotel lobby once um, in Singapore. I think it was not a special place. I think it was called the Goodwood Park Hotel and with my mother. And this massive fat guy with a huge white hat came in. And I thought, right, okay, what's who's he? I thought he was terribly impressive. So I said to my mother, what's that then? And she said to me, that's a chef. I said, I want to be a chef. And I think I was nine. And I've always since then really wanted to either do art or something arty and and it was a, a Victorian attitude of my parents, you know, no son of mine is doing art. What a waste of time. You'll never get a job. And so this was the next best, best thing and I think they were thinking, because I was really lazy at school, um, I think they were hoping that I sort of break from my books back and knuckle under and get back at, to do something more academic. But uh, that wasn't to be. And the more I got into it, you know, the lunatic of the job, travel, the excitement of different people and different food, and, you know, I, the more I loved it. So that, that, and that's how that started, I think. It does sound like a, a really remarkable existence, John, I must say. You, you make it sound really but, You know, it, 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 this, this job has taken me everywhere, you know. I mean, even coming out of lockdown, even... I, I know that in, at the end of December, I'll, I'll be in the Maldives um, at Saliba, sushi uh, cooking. And, you know, before lockdown, um, I was cooking in Vietnam. Unfortunately, that company has gone to the wind because it relied terribly on the tourist trade. Right. And there isn't any, and that's a shame. Um, but, you know, I cooked in the Caribbean and uh, the Maldives, Mauritius, and south of France, and I love the travel bit, you know. I, I absolutely love seeing different ingredients, going around different markets, learning about different pro, uh, produce, and adapting adapting a product. I mean, if you go off to do something like, I'm going to be their guest chef over the Christmas period in the Maldives, you know, you're not going to import frozen fish from England. You're not. Um, you know, you're on a little atoll, surrounded by water, surrounded by fish, and you're gonna, the first thing you're going to do is go fishing and go out with the fishermen, catch the fish, and then try and adapt those recipes, uh, uh, sorry, adapt those ingredients to your recipes. Um and then bring in different things that you've seen and learnt and eaten along the way, you know. So I like to do the, I like to do fresh food, really. Yes, it sounds absolutely glorious, John. I've been wondering this for a while. I wonder if you can help me out with it because for me there is, but I I'm simply a layman looking out. Is there a chef mafia? And um, and what I mean by that, it's a sort of slightly mm. random way of saying it is. It feels to me like head chefs become king kingmakers because they then appoint future head chefs for other restaurants. Raymond Blanc, for example, was your godfather, as it were, because you, you worked with yeah. Le Manoir Cassaison, and, and he then appointed you head chef of Le Petit Blanc. And, and 
you know, there's several other examples of head chefs that have created future stars. So do you see what I mean? Is is there a chef mafia? I don't think it's a chef mafia. I think that food in England now is fabulous. And it's fabulous because we've had a, a couple of generations of maybe a dozen fabulous chefs from all, all parts of the world. And they spun it's an offspring that are as good, if not better. And I think, I don't think it's a mafia. I just think that it's like anything else. If you work for a top professional and learn of a top professional, that's going to influence your ability and capability. So, and I think, if, and then you go forth and do your own thing, and then you might uh, spawn another person or two or three chefs. And I think, I think that's what happened. I think, the ones that the ones that did the most for us, as I'm talking about England mm. or the British Isles, were the Rue brothers. I think because they came as brothers from France. Uh, one was particularly good at pastry, the other one particularly good at sauce cookery, and they started their restaurant. I think the first one was the Gavroche, and they and they had young chefs working for them that would have gone on to be as much or bigger or better or as good. So, and I think that's, you know, if you want to learn how to do anything, if you um, particularly enjoy um, working with wood, for example, you you go and get yourself an apprenticeship with a great cabinet maker, you know, and and learn his technique, learn his style, learn his appreciation, and be and then go off and work for someone else just as good, and that's what's happened. I think mean, I don't know. I don't know if we, I don't know if mafia is the right word. Mm. Sometimes you, you find the guys that say they're self-taught. I have to look. I'm very cynical about that, and I always look deeply. And I think, oh, okay, <laughs> you know, self-taught really. And then you find out that they've worked in the fabulous place in France, and right. um, so. I, I can't think of anyone getting up in the morning and saying, oh, I'm going to be a fabulous chef and I don't know what I'm talking about because you do have to learn the basics and the foundation of this job, you know? Yes, yes, absolutely. No, that, that makes complete sense. Um, John, can we talk about TV and, and media? Because, of course, you, you know, you've yeah. done so much and, it, and it, it will have played a big impact in your career. In 2000, you decided to have a bit of downtime. You moved to France for a reboot, as it were. But that didn't really leave you alone, did it? That turned into a, a Channel 4 show called French Leave, which I, sort of kicks yeah, no, off. I absolutely love doing that. And that was in a previous life. And I, I, I don't like living with any regrets, but that was probably my biggest regret, that I didn't actually buy the place that I was living in because that was offered to me um, before I left oh. after doing the series. But I absolutely absolutely 100% love France and there are so many other television ideas that I've got in my head which I'd love you know I'd love to do in France because there's things that I, I've seen I mean I love the fact that you go from region to region in France and every region's got one or two or three or more specialities and and then I love finding out why have they got those and why do they go there and why do they why are they weird there but then sixty miles down the road they they don't, you know. And I, I love all that. I love the history of food and I've always thought that 
I'd love to do a program that if where I would be in France finding out about the specialities, and then a French chef would be in England finding out about their British ones, and we'd have to cook similar dishes. So, like, you'd have bread and butter pudding in England. Where did that come from? How was it first made? Who ever thought about that? And then some, and of course, it's all about stale bread and what you do with it. But then in France, they've got exactly the same thing, but not in the same presentation and not prepared in the same way. Like pamp, they call it pain perdu, where you have the old brioche and it's soaked in the custard and it's cooked. And it's served with apples and carbodos and blah, 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 blah. And we have our bread and butter pudding. And there's so many things like that. Black pudding in England and black pudding in France. So similar, but so different. And I, and I just, I just love, I just love how there's different styles of food in France, you know, as you move down. And where do those influences come from? You know, who were the first to get tomatoes? And why there's tomatoes all over Italy when they had, when they actually, they came from the Middle East. So I just, I don't know. I'm just inspired by that. And I, I think French leave was a real eye-opener for me because it was more about the people and the ingredients than anything else. It, I, I thought... I think I picked probably the worst place in France for creative cooking. You know, <laughs> there's there was duck, duck, and duck everywhere, and there was not much else in the southwest. But then, if you moved a little bit left or a little bit right or a little bit north or south, there was new ingredients, and that sort of inspired me to and new people and different people and passionate people about what they grew, and I loved it. I was absolutely consumed with it, and I just think, oh God. I think I thought I was trying to be sensible and I was thinking I could buy this farmhouse in the southwest with all these people I've met who I love, they love me. And I'd live there happily ever after. But of course, you've got to earn a living, haven't you? <laughs> so, so I chickened out and I said, all right, I'll go back home and open a restaurant. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's the rub. I'll go, I'll go back to what I know and do best. But yeah, yeah, living behind this wonderful experience. But it, you could always go back, though, John. And and, and that really was... I'd love to. Well, I mean, it's there, isn't it? You could you could absolutely do it. But that was the start yeah. of, of your... I mean, you've been on the telly as an ever-present, really, ever since, in different guises, haven't you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I did a, um, a very commercial show once, and that got me noticed by where I wasn't noticed. Probably I was known in the catering industry, but... I wasn't really noticed, but, you know, it wasn't a um, a face that I could walk down the street and nobody knew who I was. And then I did um, a, a, a very commercial show, and then and, and then I, that span off a load of um, television jobs. And actually, I haven't done any television for a long time, but I, it's something I'd like to do again because the bottom line is I'm show off. So <laughs> and and there's nothing there's nothing better than showing off on television you know it's good or bad it's still it's still the best radio and television the media just has always been so fabulous really so the dream um, so the dream for you john is is cooking amazing food on tv in france yeah yeah no that would be that would totally be my ultimate thing, yeah, definitely. And there's so many things. I mean, I'd like to do a program on, um, you know, the wines of Burgundy and the history of Champagne. And it's really amazing how Champagne has become such a commercial thing. And 
you know, it used to be so elitist and so expensive. And now, you know, 18-year-olds celebrate their, in England, celebrate their birthday with a bottle of champagne, you know. And it's it's really interesting because the more I looked into it, I mean, there was a story, I think it was Mum Champagne, where the, the connections with Germany and the German family in Mum, and they probably, be, if you're French, you will never admit this, but I... I loved the story when I was in the vineyard there and in the cave. They told me about this chap bursting through the gates during World War II in his Panzer tank and driving right up to the chateau, jumping out of the, the tank, reaching into his pocket, pulling up, pulling out a key and unlocking the front door. Ah. <laughs> you know, and I just thought, oh my God, you know, that's a brilliant story. And I... Yeah. And then the more you look into it and the great, the three great varieties in the bottle of champagne and why this flavor, why this soil, and then the cooking from, you know, champagne sauce for fish and champagne in desserts. And I just, it could go on and on and on and on and on. And the difficulty is to get the excitement of the ingredients and the places and the job and the food over into television without looking totally mad, you know, because you get so excited and carried away with yourself. You, you look like that loony boffin, you know, who's talking nonsense. But um, it's just, I just love it, you know. I just, I just love, 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 love cooking. Brilliant. John, it's, uh, it's so wonderful talking to you. Your passion is is so apparent, and I sincerely hope you do make these French TV shows because they sound fantastically watchable. No, I, I'd love to. Maybe when all this nonsense calmed down, somebody, some production company might approach me. But I mean, I, I, I'm still interested in opening um, a little restaurant too. You know, because I, you know, when I came back from Vietnam, it was at the end of January, not this year, last year, because. Mm. Um, the Far East got COVID sort of two months prior to, Yes, I think, what, what were we, 23rd of March? So, yeah, so two months before, I was flying back from Vietnam and thinking, oh, God, what now what's going to happen? And, and when I was sitting here on the first lockdown, my son and I um, decided to work together and start growing stuff in our old, um, an old piece of garden that we cleared. And we did a little cookbook, which we put out um, in six months, just over the spring and summer season last year. And I put it out on um, Amazon. Yes. But then I looked at the book when it's finished and it's out, and I'm thinking, you know, what about autumn and what about winter? And why haven't I put that recipe in? And even now, today, I'm still thinking about what we can plant and what we can grow and what, you know, because everyone has their likes and dislikes. And I knew that last year, in a panic, I planted everything I possibly could. And then I realized, you know, why not plant a spring onions when you can buy them for 20p a bunch? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you want to plant what you like or what's expensive or what's diff- different to grow. And But I got into... I tell you what, I got into foraging, you know, for okay. blackberries when they come up in August, and I made blackberry jelly, and we sold it at the top of the hill, um, at the top of our driveway, because I live on a little farm. And 
flu gin, I miso gin, and wild garlic, which is everywhere. And, you know, I made things, uh, mushrooms, we picked mushrooms and then went fishing for mackerel and sea bass. And I just think, you know, there's nothing like getting free food, is there? No. You know, actually finding ingredients and then coming home and making something that didn't cost you anything. I just think that's great. Yeah. Absolute treat. Well, I'm, I'm waffling now. No, no, it's, I John, it's think, great. I bet lockdown was fun with you. I mean, I'm just thinking to myself, wow. It was, it was, it was like everything else, a bit, for, you know, a bit mad. But um, I just, I, I'm, I'm going to make it my business to find a publisher and take my old homegrown and by father and son and redo it, put in all the recipes I want to do it and in a different preservation and give people much more of an idea. But, you know, when you do things in a hurry, you sometimes miss out on things. Yes. And much more of an idea how to grow the stuff, you know, and this, um, an approach an approach to cooking of it. Um, oh, fantastic. Yeah. I look forward so to that's, seeing that. So that's that. Brilliant. John, thank you. I, I, I Firstly, I look forward to seeing that book because it sounds terrific. You know, the revised, and I love your idea of tactical small holding you know go for the stuff that's expensive in the shops perfect love yeah. love that but most important it's just it's it's been a real treat having this this time with you because your passion enthusiasm knowledge and insight is just oh, it's world class thank you so much for your company it's been brilliant no, it's been a great pleasure thank you very much and sorry i was waffling quite a lot <laughs> no, it's, it's none, none at all i've absolutely loved it so i really really okay. appreciate it thank you if you're enjoying the Andy J podcast, we'd love a review. In fact, if you're enjoying the show, why not tell your friends? Podcasts live and die on, well, often word of mouth, so please tell your friends. Like, subscribe, review, and share. Thank you. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.